I'm reading from Matthew 2, 34 to 46. And in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 26 of the New Testament. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him. The son of David, he said to them. How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And from Leviticus 19, 1-2 and 15-8, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You shall not render an unjust judgment, nor shall you be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbour. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbour. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall not reprove your neighbour, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. The people of my country have been awaiting his return now for about a thousand years. All the prophecies and the legends are clear that he is coming back. Every child learns the stories of his great deeds at their mother's knee. How his kingly rule united our country. How he brought peace and prosperity to our people. How he will come again to aid us in the hour of our greatest need. He's coming again, we all know it. The question is when and why is it taking so long? Albion has suffered many trials and still King Arthur has not returned. The Jews are not the only nation to have a Messiah mythology. The archetype of the absent but returning hero, of one who has now gone but will come again, runs deep within the psyche of many people groups and religions. From the Greco-Roman gods of Dionysus and Mithras to the first century Divibus belief that the emperor Nero would return from the grave to retake Rome to the English Arthurian legends of the Middle Ages 
to the heroes of the ancient Welsh Mabinogion, to Gandalf returning from the fires of Mount Doom, to the death and return of Superman. This trope of a hero who dies or goes away only to return victoriously in the nick of time to save the day is one which is repeated through many cultural incarnations. For the ancient Jews, the figure they were waiting for was called the Messiah in Hebrew or the Christ in Greek. Originally, for the Jews, the Messiah was simply a word that was used to describe someone who had been anointed with oil to perform their role. So you might be anointed as a priest. You would be a priestly Messiah. Or a king would be anointed for their kingly role. They would be a kingly Messiah, an anointed one. So, for example, King Saul is anointed by the prophet Samuel as the first king of Israel, and David, who succeeds him, is similarly anointed. As the years went on, King David, the anointed one, became the kind of quintessential anointed one of the Old Testament. A couple of places even record promises by God to secure David's kingship forever. And David's messianic kingship, his anointed kingship, acquired a kind of mythic status, not too dissimilar to that of King Arthur in the culture of the British Isles. In the Judaism of the few hundred years leading up to the time of Jesus, this term Messiah developed further. And it came to play an important function in the Jewish imagination. There is some variety here, but messianic expectations from the period of what we would call Second Temple Judaism, which is the period from the rebuilding of the temple at the end of the exile up to the time of uh, Jesus. Um, these expectations of a Messiah in this period typically take the form of a coming Davidic military leader. So someone who will arise and assume the throne of David and free the Jewish people from foreign occupation and restore Israel's borders back to the extent that the David stories were claiming for them. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which date from around about the time of Jesus, a little bit before, a little bit after, give or take a few hundred years, but that sort of period, they reveal an interesting expectation. Uh, this is a, a Jewish sect, and they were waiting for not one, but two Jewish messiahs. They were expecting one to be a priestly messiah and one to be a military messiah. So someone who was anointed in a priestly capacity and someone who was anointed in a military capacity. Certainly, Jesus wasn't the only historical figure to be named Messiah in or around this period. Uh, for example, um, in Isaiah chapter 45, we meet the term Messiah being applied to the non-Israelite King Cyrus of Persia, who brought an end to the Babylonian exile of the Jews in the 6th century BC. 
So here we've got a Messiah who's not even a Jew. He was just the leader to overthrew the Babylonian leader and allowed the Jews to go back to their land. And Isaiah says, he is my anointed one. He is my Messiah. Much closer to the time of Jesus, Messiah was used of the leader of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Kokhba, uh, Bar Kokhba meaning son of Kokhba. And uh, this character, uh, I think his name is Simeon Bar Kokhba, led a revolt uh, against the, uh, the Greeks at that period in the second century BC. And he was hailed as a Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah. I'm not sure he was a very naughty boy, but he, 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 but that, that was a word that was used of him. Well, all of this background and tradition lies behind the gospel writers' invitation for their readers to identify Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ or as the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, it seems that Questions over whether Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah were asked of him during his lifetime. So we get the story in Luke's Gospel of John the Baptist coming to Jesus and asking if he is the one who is to come. Because if he isn't, John and his followers will wait for another one, and if he is, then they'll follow him. However, a, a related question to sit alongside that of whether Jesus is the Messiah was the question of, if he is, what kind of Messiah is he? Is he a priestly Messiah? Is he a militaristic Messiah? Is he one who will restore the temple? Is he one who will restore the monarchy? Whose Messiah will he be? Will he be the Messiah of the religious radicals or the Messiah of the political radicals? And it's these kinds of questions that are underlying the exchange that Jesus has with the Pharisees in our reading today from Matthew's Gospel. The Pharisees have just heard that Jesus has managed to outsmart the Sadducees. And they decide that it's now their turn again to play the game of ridicule the rabbi. So they wheel in a specialist lawyer to ask Jesus a tried and tested no-win question with the intent of trapping him, whatever his answer. It's kind of first century equivalent of me saying to uh, say somebody, you know, when, when did you stop beating your wife? There's no right answer you can give to that that doesn't incriminate you if you think about it. So they say to Jesus, tell us, teacher, which commandment is the greatest? Now, the idea here is that whichever command Jesus picked would get him into trouble. So if, for example, he played it safe and went with, have no other gods before the Lord, they would then accuse him of moral laxity because he was negating or neglecting the commands about adultery. However, if he decided to go down the ethical route and answer, well, thou shalt not commit adultery is the greatest command, he would then be accused of idolatry because he'd ignored the first command, and so on. It was kind of the perfect no-win question to derail the cocksure carpenter from Nazareth. But as with the Pharisees' previous trap, the one about paying taxes to the emperor, which Ruth was preaching on last week, Jesus shrugs off their trap with ease, giving them an answer that covers all the bases. Love God and love neighbour, he says. Both commands, but neither of them commandments. Jesus takes the popular Shema command from Deuteronomy, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and combines it with a lesser known injunction to love neighbour from the book of Leviticus. Now, the Pharisees would have been right in there with the love of God, part of Jesus' answer. He won them over with the first answer, really. But by adding to it the love of one's neighbour as an equal command, Jesus then highlighted to the Pharisees the weakness inherent in their own super-religious ideology. Well, so far, so clever. Well done, Jesus. Not only has he once again dodged the trap that has been set for him, but he has also managed to prick the pomposity of the Pharisees, unmasking their potential for heartless religious conservatism. However, this is not just a story about Jesus beating the Pharisees at their own game. Because the story continues, with Jesus taking the opportunities to push the Pharisees a bit further by setting them a riddle of his own. Tell me, he says, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? This is a classic riddle, one with a seemingly obvious answer which will turn out to be unsustainable. Um, There's an interesting book, which I think I've referred to here before, called Jesus the Riddler. And it's trying to say that a lot of the time when Jesus is engaging with people, he's doing it in the tradition of a a riddle setter of the period. And there's quite a lot of evidence that people taught by setting riddles. And one of the clue phrases to something being a classic riddle is the introductory phrase, what do you think? It's something we've heard from the lips of Jesus before. He's asked a variety of difficult questions of people, from disciples to opponents, to stimulate thought from them. And he usually begins it with, what do you think? And you just kind of know there's something coming. But most recently, it was the phrase that the Pharisees had used when asking Jesus their question about paying taxes. What do you think they said to Jesus? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Well, as we saw last week, Jesus went somewhere with that. And this week, it's kind of payback time. So Jesus says back to them, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? The Pharisees, after a few moments of careful thought, supply what they believe to be the safe and scriptural answer. He's the son of David, they say. He's not the son of Joseph and Mary from Nazareth. He's not the son of Kokhbar from the Bar Kokhbar rebellion of 150 years ago. He's not the son of righteousness. He is the son of David. However, in giving this answer, the Pharisees have once again been forced into revealing their hand. Because it turns out that what you hope for tells an awful lot about what you believe in. What you hope for tells an awful lot about what you believe in. This was running through my mind as Kimberly was singing that song. Which city do you live in? Are you already living in the heavenly city that transforms the world, or are you living in the hell of here and now? What you hope for tells a lot about what you believe in. And the Pharisees were hoping for a son of David. They were hoping for a Davidic Messiah. 
And a Davidic Messiah would be a military Messiah, a Messiah who would overthrow the oppressors. A Davidic Messiah would be a political Messiah. He would be one who would restore the nation to its former glory. The answer that the Pharisees give to this seemingly innocent question from Jesus is far more revealing of the Pharisees' deeper motives than they realise. So Jesus, having hooked them in, decides to push it a bit and takes his riddle to the next level. Right then, he says, so the Messiah is David's son, is he? So how is it then that in one of the worship psalms written by David himself and inspired by the Spirit, how is it that in one of David's own psalms he calls his, the Messiah his Lord? The logic is simple. If David calls the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Well, at this point, the Pharisees back off. Not simply because they've been caught out on a technicality in some obscure game of Hebrew Bible proof texting. Rather, they back off because the whole basis of their belief in a Davidic Messiah as a military, politically centrist, nationalistic hero has just been unmasked and exposed to public ridicule. They've just discovered that what you hope for tells an awful lot about what you believe in. And Jesus, in subverting the neat logic of their hoped-for Davidic Messiah, had also subverted the cold logic of their militaristic, nationalistic God. You see, this is not, it turns out, simply a story about how Jesus is once again cleverer than the Pharisees. Rather, it's a debate about the nature of faith itself, and it raises fundamental questions about what is meant by salvation. Is our hoped-for salvation simply synonymous with divine vindication of our shared ideology? Is salvation to be understood in terms of victory for me and mine, with them and theirs as of, at best, secondary concern? You see, the answer we might give to the question of what kind of Messiah we hope for will tell us a lot about the God that we believe in. And Jesus, it seems, is challenging in no uncertain terms any kind of belief in a Messiah that is understood as a politicised, nationalistic, tribal, partisan, Davidic hero. And yet the people of God, both in the first century and in the 21st century and in all the centuries in between, have found it all too easy to become trapped in a belief system that is predicated upon a Davidic ideology. Any attempt to equate national identity with the identity of the people of God represents an expression of Davidic messianic ideology. And this is not where Jesus puts himself. From the Christianization of the Roman Empire under Constantine to the development of Christendom and the Holy Roman Empire to the contemporary tabloid-esque assertion that we are, after all, supposed to be a Christian country to the anointing of a monarch in Westminster Abbey by none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury we have repeatedly, through Christian history, revealed that what we long for is a Davidic 
Messiah. The people of Christ have joined their voices with those of the Pharisees time and time again in giving the answer that the hoped-for Messiah is the son of David. But this is not how Jesus describes himself. Every time in the Gospels that Jesus is called the son of David, it is someone else using the language of him. I know this because I spent some time this week and I went through them all and I double-checked. He never calls himself the son of David. In fact, when he does use the term here in Matthew and in the parallel passage in Mark's gospel, he does so simply to undermine its use. Jesus does not, it seems, see himself as a son of David. He is not the Davidic Messiah. He is not the answer to the put-upon people of God's desire to have their powerlessness reversed. He is not the just cause in whose name armies might march to overthrow the evils of the other. Rather, Jesus constantly uses a different title for himself. Consistently, through the Gospels, Jesus describes himself not as the son of David, but as the son of man. The pursuit of a Davidic ideology takes the people of God into conflict and division and violence. It is a failed ideology based on nationalism and power politics, and it is not the path that Christ sets his face to. He does not go to Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans. He does not raise up and lead the longed-for rebel army to victory over the oppressors. He does not seek to establish the kingdom of Davidic justice and peace on earth as lots of people thought he would and wanted him to do. Rather, he breaks out of the Davidic ideology by identifying himself not as the son of David, but as the son of man from the Jewish apocalyptic tradition. The Messiah, Jesus, is the son of man. He is the son of the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, in whose writings we first encounter that phrase. He is a child of the margins, not of the centre. He is the offspring of the oppressed, not the progeny of power. He is the scion of the kingdom of heaven. He is not the spawn of the kingdom of David. And as such, he challenges those of us who continue to bear his name and in whose lives his spirit is still active to turn our backs on our dreams of a Davidic Messiah. He challenges us to give up our dreams of power and our hopes for vindication of our deeply held convictions. He calls us to step away from our ideologies of militarism, nationalism and imperialism. He calls us to abandon the cause of a Christian country and to look instead for the inbreaking kingdom of heaven which knows no national borders and transcends all political creeds. He calls us to relinquish our dogmas of certainty and to embrace the quest for questions. He calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. Intelligence is called for here. But he also calls us to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. The love of God on its own gives birth all too easily to a tribal understanding of faith, where we are defined in opposition 
to those who love God differently to us, or perhaps to those who love a different God to us. The love of God on its own all too easily makes Pharisees of us all, as the quest for the Davidic Messiah takes shape in our midst and we seek to take the world for the God we believe in. The love of God on its own all too easily justifies a desire to win the world for Christ. It justifies the cross of St. George on the shield of the Crusader. It justifies the all too frequent equation of earthly territory with the kingdom of heaven. We are not in a turf war with Islam. The current crisis in Iraq and Syria is predicated on an us-and-them dogma where two sides, each believing that they are right and that the other is evil, are fighting for territory, resources and ideological superiority all in the name of God. Both sides believe that the end justifies their means. And so Islamic State fighters are prepared to perpetuate terrible acts of brutality on innocent aid workers and local populations alike because they believe that this furthers their divinely sanctioned objective. But we in the West are prepared to live with the unfortunate phenomenon that we call collateral damage because we believe that we are right and that this enemy must be stopped. This is where Davidic messianism takes us. This is where devotion to our God and our God alone takes us. And so Jesus says to the Davidic Pharisees that they need to learn to love their neighbour as they love themselves. Who is my neighbour? Someone asked Jesus. Well, that's a story for another day. But what if my neighbour in this global village of ours does not look like me? or believe like me, or speak like me. Let's bring it a bit closer to home. What if my neighbour in this great city of ours is an immigrant family from another part of the world, come in over here? Actually, my neighbour is an immigrant family. They're from India, and they're really nice. But you know what I mean. The rise of xenophobic, anti-immigration, racist politics in the so-called Christian countries of the Western world, is another function of our embracing of a Davidic ideology that sees us and ours as more important than them and theirs. And it's got to stop, and it's got to stop with us. Because if it doesn't stop with us, it's not going to stop. It is directly challenged by Jesus, the Son of Man, who calls us all to love God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds. But not just to love God. And not just to love ourselves. But to love our neighbour as ourselves.